Remain standing for our sermon text and epistle lesson from Romans 5. Last week we ended in verse 8, so we'll pick up in verse 9. Give your ear to God's word. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for declaring us, your people, to be righteous and for reconciling us to you through the blood, through the death of Jesus. And as we meditate on that truth, yet again, we we ask for your Spirit's presence in applying it to our hearts in new and in deeper ways so that we live out of this glorious truth. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. After three weeks now in Romans chapter 5, we've finally made it to verse 11, and we can now see better how these 11 verses are meant to assure us, to assure believers of their eternal hope, their eternal security, as it's often called, in Christ, so that we might rejoice in God with great rejoicing. In other words, you have every reason as a believer to be certain of your past, present, and future salvation. Paul has supported his thesis with a variety of arguments, beginning in verse 1. He makes at least six arguments that I'm going to summarize here, and they're on your handout. You can look at your Bible or the handout as we review these six arguments for assurance of salvation. And this is a review of the last couple of sermons, and this is a good time to remind you that we are going through a series here. I, I try to preach each sermon as a standalone sermon, so if it's your first time you, you will not have needed to be here, but I'll remind you that our sound servants are diligent in putting up every week's sermon on the internet right after church, and so it's good if you are listening to the whole series to get the context, but I want you to see with me the, the first supporting argument there in verse 1. He says, we have the assurance of our salvation because God has made peace with us through the atoning cross of Christ Jesus. That's the first support. This, the second supporting argument there in verse 2, Paul says we have assurance of our salvation because through that same work, he says, we have access to God. We've been brought into a new relationship with God, with the King and the Creator of the cosmos, and we have access to His throne of grace. We have the privilege of standing before God and talking to him 24 hours a day. 
Third, at the end of verse 2, Paul says we have the assurance of salvation because we have the hope of glory. Elsewhere, Paul calls that the blessed hope. We are certain that we will one day see God face to face and experience firsthand and in fullness his glory. Fourth, in verses 3 and 4, Paul says we have the assurance of salvation because we can see, even now, we can see how our pain, our afflictions, our sufferings in this life produce in us even more hope for the world to come. That's their end. That's, their, that's what happens when we go through these trials as Christians is that they produce more hope. We're able to rejoice in our afflictions because we see God's purpose in them. Fifth, Paul says in verse 5 that we have the assurance of salvation because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. The Holy Spirit has done this. He has poured his love and himself into the center of your inner being. You know that you know that you know the truth about reality because you know the reality maker. And he is living inside of you and pouring his love into you. This is our subjective hope, as we call it, our internal hope. The hope that lives inside of us because God and his love live there. Finally, number six, Paul says in verses six to eight that the death of Christ validates that subjective hope. We, we can be assured of our salvation because the God-man, Jesus Christ, died for us, the ungodly. Not when we were his friends, not when we were inclined toward him, as we are now, as believers, but when we were sworn enemies of God. Rarely will someone die for a righteous person, Paul says, but Jesus died for you while you were a helpless sinner. Verses 7 and 8. And, and those, those last two points from really verses 5 to 8, which we looked at last week in detail, are especially important as we come to today's passage to keep that right there in the front of your mind, the subjective experience of God's love, that internal experience of God's love, increases hope. And the death of Christ for sinners proves that this internal hope is grounded objectively, historically, theologically. Now we've arrived at our sermon text. In these last three verses, Paul draws together his preceding arguments and he brings it home for us. Let's read verses 9 and 10 from the handout. How much more then, since we have been declared righteous by his blood, shall we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more... Having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Paul's argument, especially in verses 9 and 10, is how much more? It's a how much more argument. It's the kind that says if, if, if that is true, then how much more is this true? 
It's the kind of argument that a mother might make to her hungry, growing boy who thinks he's starving. Son, if I endured nine, endured nine months of pregnancy and hours of labor and delivery and countless sleepless nights feeding you and soothing you when you were a baby, cooking meals for you as you grew into a boy, how much more will I make sure you don't die of hunger now that you have been my son for these 10 years? Or an even better illustration, maybe, is what an adoptive father and mother might say to their adopted son or daughter. Child, if we were willing and happy to, to jump through all those hoops and wade through all the red tape and abide by all the policies and fill out all the forms and spend all that money and take all of that time and drive all of those miles and take all of the risks necessary to make you our son... If we were willing to do all of that before you were our son, how much more will we love you and provide for you now that you really are truly our son? That's the nature of the argument here, particularly in verses 9 and 10. Since God has demonstrated his love by sending Christ to die for you while you were a sinner, before you were a son, it naturally follows that he will see to it that you Come safely home, that you are safely preserved all the way to the end. Do you see the comfort here? Do you see the logic here? Since God has already removed the greatest obstacles to your future glory, since he, he's already removed the, the guilt, your guilt and your enmity with God, how much more will he see to it that you're spared from eternal judgment, wrath, as Paul it. In verse 9, Paul uses the word blood. What's he referring to there? He's referring to the death of Christ. This language recalls the bloody animal sacrifices in the book of Leviticus and reminds us that the death of Christ was sacrificial in nature. Your righteous standing before God was free to you, but it wasn't cheap. It cost you nothing, but God purchased it at the cost of his son's precious blood. And so it was costly. The righteousness of Christ's blood sets up the main point in verse 9. If the obstacle of your sin has already been dealt with, already been removed, as far as the east is from the west, so that you stand before God as in his courtroom as, as not guilty, not only that, you, you also stand in his courtroom as positively righteous. Just as, just as righteous as Christ is. That's your legal standing. If the obstacle of your sin has been thus removed, you can be utterly confident that you will be saved in the future from God's wrath when Jesus returns. I want you to see that in verse 9. Now, I want you to notice that the salvation that Paul is talking about here is in the future tense. I, I alluded to that past, present, future aspect toward the beginning, the introduction. It's eschatological salvation, end of time salvation that Paul is thinking about here. The Bible talks about salvation in all the tenses. As past reality, present reality, future reality, we've been saved, 
we are being saved and we will be saved. This is one of those future we will be saved passages. Paul also speaks about the, speaks this way in other places. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he says, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we wait, he said, for, for Jesus to return from heaven and to deliver us from the wrath that he's bringing when he comes. Wrath on unbelievers. Psalm 2, wrath on the raging nations. So sons and daughters of God, if, if, if he was able to save you when you did not belong to him, will he fail you now that you're his child? If he was able to save you when you were hostile toward him, will he fail you now that you're his friend? If he didn't, if he didn't abandon you to hell, as he could have, when you were at war with him, what could you do to make him give up on you now, now that you're at peace with him through Christ's blood? What can you do to make him fail to keep his promises to you? Is there anything you can do to be disinherited as a son? There's nothing. Paul gives a, a fuller version of this argument in Romans 8, that glorious passage at the end of Romans chapter 8, where he, asks, he starts out asking five questions that say a lot, that, that, answer, that, that provide answers implicitly, but then he also provides explicit answers. But he says, so this is how he starts off in that, in that final passage, that final part of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things in him? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? And then he provides the answer. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding, that means praying, for us. And then he asks one more question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He concludes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The argument in verse 10 is similar. But I want you to look at your, at your Bible or the handout and see if you can detect the key difference between verse 9 and verse 10. I'm going to ask a non-rhetorical question in a minute. Okay. Verse 10 is, is mostly, you look at it, it's mostly a restatement of verse 9. But there's a key difference in the salvation terminology. And I'll give you a hint before I ask. In verse 9, Paul speaks of justification, or in my translation, of being declared righteous, which is what justification is. So what does he replace this idea with in verse 10? Let me ask it this way. In verse 9, 
we were declared righteous before God. But in verse 10, Paul says we were very good. Thank you. Thank you, Teddy. I heard you the best. I think there were, there were several, several of you. We were reconciled to God. So the, the, both of those words are very important. Whereas justification refers to our righteous legal standing in God's courtroom, reconciliation refers to our personal relationship with God as his friends, as his sons, daughters. Righteousness and reconciliation are two different images for describing the same thing, the same big reality, describing what God has accomplished for us in Christ's bloody death. And both of these gifts are blessings. There are blessings that God gave to Israel and that now belong to the church. Righteousness, reconciliation, justification, relationship. They come together. Justification emphasizes that you stand in a right relationship with God, while reconciliation stresses that you are in a friendly, approachable relationship with God. Verse 10, like verse 9, features the future consequences of our salvation in Christ, of our justification by faith. The the last clause in verse 10 says, we shall be saved by his life. It's an interesting phrase. Paul reiterates the future tense here, future tense aspect of our salvation. But those last three words are a little puzzling, aren't they? What does Paul mean when he says, by his life? As you read that, it, it maybe comes off just a little awkwardly. And he's referring to Christ's resurrection. That doesn't really fully answer our question. How does Christ's resurrection save us from eternal wrath? Okay. What, what, what about the resurrection points to this future aspect of salvation? We know, we know we're justified now because of his resurrection. But here Paul seems to be pointing to, the, to that eschatological salvation, end of time salvation, and, it, and he's attributing it to Christ's life, his resurrection. This is actually a key verse in, in, the, in the academic study of Paul's theology. Pauline scholars agree that this verse, Romans 5.10, introduces in, in the Pauline corpus, the Pauline body of, of letters, it introduces the importance of the resurrection for Paul's theology. And so later in 1 Timothy 3.16, for example, Paul says that Jesus was vindicated at his resurrection. The word actually is justified. It's typically translated vindicated. Vindicated means that he was shown to be in the right publicly. He was shown to be the righteous one, the sinless one who obeyed God perfectly. That was all proved to be true when he rose from the dead. Jesus received his verdict, that, that verdict, this, his vindication, public declaration of his righteousness at his resurrection. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16. This is good news if you are united to Christ by faith. Because if you, if you are united to Christ by faith, 
you participate in that vindication. You receive that same vindication. It's yours. You, you participate in victory over sin and death. His righteousness, which was declared to be his at his resurrection, is now your righteousness simply because you are united to him by faith. You're saved by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. His death is your death. His resurrection is your life. But, but, but I still haven't got to that, that future aspect that I said I think Paul's pointing us to here. Well, earlier I read from the end of Romans 8. Remember that? Where, where Paul fills out this argument. He, he kind of takes what he says here in the first part of Romans 5 and he expands it at the end of Romans 8. And in that passage, Paul gives two reasons why you can be sure that you will not be condemned on Judgment Day. The first, in verse 33, I read this, is that God has declared you to be righteous in Christ, and he would never condemn anyone who's been vindicated in Christ. But, but the second reason, verse 34 in Romans 8, this is the one I want to focus on, is that the risen Jesus... The risen Jesus, he focuses on the resurrection, and that risen Jesus prays for you. That's what Paul says there. You can be sure that you'll escape eternal condemnation, persevere to the end because Jesus intercedes for you at God's right hand. Listen to verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, I actually didn't read this verse, but I'm going to read it now. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Actually, I did read it. But do you hear that? He is interceding for us at the right hand of God, having been resurrected from the dead. And he even says, more than that. You know, he's died. More than that, who, has, who was raised, who ascended and the climax, who prays. The resurrected Christ right now is praying for believers, and that's why, that's why we persevere. When we consider the, the parallels between these two passages, between beginning of 5 and the end of 8, it helps us understand somewhat Paul's awkward language in his point there at the end of 510 where he says we will be saved by his life it points to both the resurrection of jesus and the intercessory prayers of the risen jesus for his people because those that comes that those two things come together that's that's one of the things that the resurrection means is that you have the mediator between god and man praying for his people the prayers of Jesus are what make the difference between a true believer who perseveres and a false believer who falls away and is condemned to hell. And we see this played out dramatically. We get a window into it as it's played out dramatically in the lives of Peter and Judas. In the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus said that he, he doesn't, he's not praying for everyone's perseverance. He only prays for his people, his sheep, his current ones and his future ones. Specifically, Jesus didn't ask the Father to give Judas saving faith. 
That's why Judas didn't make it. It's a hard truth, isn't it? Satan desired to have both Peter and Judas. The devil wanted to sift both of them like wheat. But he was unable to get to Peter. Why? Because Jesus interceded for him. He was one of his sheep that got prayed for. In Luke 22, 31 and 32, Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But, and here's the, here's the difference, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, when you've repented of this sin that you're about to commit, strengthen your brothers. Peter was saved. He ended up repenting because Jesus interceded for him. I haven't quoted J.C. Ryle in a while, so here's a, here's a fairly lengthy one, but it's worth the, the length. Ryle says, It is true that Christ loves all sinners and invites all to be saved. But it is also true that he specially loves the blessed company of all faithful people whom he sanctifies and glorifies. It is true that he, he has wrought out a redemption sufficient for all mankind and offers it freely to all. But it's also true that his redemption is effectual, it's effective only to those who believe. It is true that he is the mediator between God and man, but it is also true that he intercedes, prays for actively for none but those who come to God by him. Hence it is written, I pray for them, I pray not for the world. That's a quote from John 17. Continuing in, with Ryle, this special intercession of the Lord Jesus is one grand secret of the believer's safety. He is daily watched and thought for and provided for with unfailing care by one whose eye never slumbers and never sleeps. Jesus is able to save them to the uttermost who come unto God by him because he ever lives to make intercession for them. Note that he lives, he's resurrected, with a pur for a purpose, to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7, 25. They never perish because he never ceases to pray for them. And his prayer must prevail. They stand and persevere to the end, not because of their own strength and goodness, but because Jesus intercedes for them. Judas fell never to rise again, while Peter fell but repented and was restored. The reason for the difference lay under those words of Christ to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. End quote. Ryle quotes Hebrews 7.25 there, which says that Christ ever lives, lives forever, having risen from the dead and at the right hand of God to make intercession. That's the idea behind verse 10. You will be saved by his life, by his living. He lives precisely to pray for you. Well, these, these 10 verses, these first 10 verses in Romans 5 present us with a string of blessings and promises and assurances that come to those, that belong to those who have been declared righteous 
before God by faith in Christ. All of these benefits establish us in our future hope, the hope of glory. But verse 11 shifts the focus back to the present. It says, we rejoice even now. And not only that, Paul says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received this reconciliation. Joy, rejoicing in God, is the great marker of the one who is right with God, the one who is justified. Joy is the great marker of those who've been washed in the blood, who've been saved by the sacrifice of Christ. Are you right with God? Have you been declared righteous by faith in Jesus? Is it visible on your face? Is it manifest in your life? True joy, real joy, which is lasting joy, unshakable joy, is unique to Christianity, to the Christian faith, because only Christ can provide the joy that does not depend on circumstances or accomplishments or earthly comforts. Whenever you give your heart to anything other than God or any part of your heart, excuse me, <coughs> to anything other than God, you'll be disappointed every single time. If you if you're unhappy, it's it's because you've been you you've given your heart to something other than the Lord Jesus. Joy that is dependent on human relationships or performance or happy circumstances is brittle. It's insecure. It's it's fleeting. If if you've lived very long, you, you know this. You know this because you've often come to that point in your life when you realize, yet again, probably, that you're not happy. You're not fundamentally joyful. You realize that the thing you were banking on for your happiness, whether it was career success or starting a family or gaining recognition or buying a farm or making more money, or joining a certain kind of community, or retirement, or perhaps some vice. You come to the realization that it can't make you truly and permanently happy. And so, never again, you say, never again will I give my heart to that thing or to anything besides God again. What do, you, what, what do you end up doing? What do we end up doing? You, you either look to something else. Maybe you come back to that thing. And the cycle continues. Or you give up altogether on finding joy and become detached, unable to enjoy anything. Tim Keller says, Ultimately, without the gospel, we must either worship the world's pleasures or withdraw from the world's pleasures. So it's worship or withdraw, or withdraw without the gospel. But the gospel gives us God, and he does not change. Remember Augustine's famous prayer. He said to God, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless 
until it rests in you. I quoted that last week. And I recommend that you pray that prayer, that you make that confession to God regularly. Personalize it. You have made me for yourself, O Lord, and my heart is restless until it finds rest in you. Personalize it. Say it until your heart is resting in God. Repeat it. Pray it until you are leaning back into the arms of your heavenly Father. Until you are experiencing the love that God has poured into your heart. Did you know that you can find joy and peace simply in knowing God and communing with him? Did you know that? Even if you lose everything else that is dear to you. It's possible. It happened to Horatio Spafford, the author of It Is Well With My Soul. Spafford's four-year-old son had died in 1871. Then two years later, his daughters died. And in the midst of this tra tragedy, he penned a hymn that we sing. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. And here's a verse we don't often sing, but it fits well with Paul's hope of glory. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. You can't experience the fullness of joy in this world unless your heart is set on the blessed hope in the world to come. When Jesus returns and the dead in Christ rise to live with him forever. You can look forward with cast iron certainty to your home in eternal glory. And you can enjoy a, a foretaste of it even now as the Holy Spirit enables you to experience the love of God in your heart even now in the present, not just in the future. And then with your heart resting in God, as you rejoice in God through the through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul points out in verse 11, you're able to enjoy all the good gifts of this life without becoming too attached to those good gifts or and without becoming too detached from this life. Let me say that again. When your heart is resting in God, when you're rejoicing in God through Jesus Christ, your Lord, you're able to enjoy all the good gifts that God gives to you in this life without becoming too attached to those good gifts and without becoming too detached from this life. So how do we get this joy? By internalizing, loving and living out the truths of these first 11 verses 
of Romans 5. Your joy will grow as, as you grow in your knowledge of who you are, what you have, and where you stand. As you grow in your knowledge of what you've been given and what you have access to, simply because you've been declared righteous by faith. Seek God this week until you find yourself rejoicing in the future hope of glory. Rejoicing even in your suffering. Rejoicing in God. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the joy that you've given to us in Jesus, for the joy that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh God, this week, may we live in that joy, live out of that joy, so that it is the great marker of our lives, the lives of those who have been declared righteous through the blood of Christ. Help us to accomplish this, work this in us, for Christ's sake. Amen.